Hello besties, I'm back from LA and I am the same old London bitch I was when I left, honestly, it did not change me. I really thought I was going to come back Gwyneth Paltrow, like I can't even lie to you, I was like, damn, I'm going to be on my LA ship, but that place is just not ready for me. And like, no disrespect to anyone that lives there, I'm sure you can drive and I'm sure you have an amazing time being a Los Angeles girly. I cannot drive. And let me explain this properly because I feel like when I say to people I cannot drive, they just think I don't have my license. I do not know the first thing about driving a car. My parents don't drive. I have never ever observed anybody drive. I've never had a lesson. I do not understand driving. I cannot even drive a bumper car. I can't even play Mario Kart properly and win. So I, yeah, driving, not for me, not on my list of things to do. And I've never really had the need to do it because I'm from London and you do not need to drive here. Like people who have cars in London, I'm like, wow, okay, you're in a different tax bracket to me because I'm not paying parking fees. No way. And the tube is like £1.55. I'm not buying a car. I don't even know how expensive cars are, but I'm assuming a lot. Anyway, so yeah, I can't drive. And so I went to LA and <laughs> um, yeah, I spent a lot of money on Uber. I will say though, it's so easy to be healthy there. And I love that. Like I love that culture so much. Like Air One, even though it is extraordinarily overpriced, is my idea of heaven. Like, I loved Air One, and that was literally all I wanted to see in LA. Did I book a flight to LA to go to Air One? Yes. Yes, yes, I did. But I'm also really proud of myself because I went on this holiday and I didn't work out once. Not once. Because every single holiday that I go on, I'm like, okay, where's the nearest workout studio? What workouts am I going to do? And obviously, I love working out. And that's why I work out now. Like, I don't work out for any other reason other than I love it. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel mentally healthy. Like, I just love it so much. I went on this trip and I was like, I know that traveling is a bit of a trigger for me because I don't really have control over what foods I can eat. And I just wanted to go on this holiday to enjoy myself. And I wanted to eat in and out And I wanted to go to Chick-fil-A. And I wanted to eat all the American candy and like not feel guilty about it. So it really was a test to myself. And I did it. I didn't work out once. I didn't feel guilty about anything I ate. I had like four breakfast tacos from home state, which I absolutely loved. And I was just like free and it felt really, really good. And I'm really, really proud of myself for that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think I had a salad once. Because I mean, in and out, like I had to. It's only on the West Coast, right? Or like just in California? I'm not too sure. But I was like, fuck it, get me that animal style fries and a burger meal. I'm here for it. And I had it. And I was like, damn, Mary, we've come so far. No tears, no nothing. We've come so far. So yeah, I will also say that with LA, um, this is something that I've said to everyone who's asked me, like, how did you find LA? My first response is, I was unprepared for the level of homelessness that is in LA. And it is really, really sad. Like, I live in London, so I see homelessness all the time. And obviously, it's always sad. It never is not sad. Like, I don't think you can ever become numb to it. But to be in LA and, like, see the Hollywood sign and then just look to the other side of you and see, like, a million tents is really like soul sucking and heartbreaking. It's it's really, really sad. Like I just didn't know that LA was like that at all. And I've heard that San Francisco is worse and I can't even imagine how you can be worse than LA. But I was outside my hotel one night and um, I had taken an edible and it hadn't kicked in yet, but I'd taken an edible and then I went outside 
and the edible started to kick in just as this homeless guy came up to me. And I was like, oh, hey, like, you know, if someone wants to talk, I'm I'm not going to run away. I mean, does that probably put me in a lot of danger more often than not? Yeah, but I don't know. Something in me was just like, just talk to this guy. Like, he just wants someone to talk to. And so I spent an hour speaking with him and he was just like talking about living in LA and how he's lived there his whole life. And like now he has no house and he's really struggling with like no health insurance and things like that. And it just completely shattered my heart and kind of made the whole trip go through a different lens because I think my idea of LA was like bright lights and money and you know Hollywood signs and stars and influencers and everyone's living an amazing life and it's just really not like that I'd say the majority of people in LA are homeless which is absolutely awful and shouldn't be allowed and is like completely inhumane and I just kept thinking like Silicon Valley and the Hollywood Hills and all these places in LA where the elite live and like the 1% live with the most money in the world and they will never ever spend the amount of money in their bank account in their lifetime compared to the amount of people who are just trying to get through every day with no roof over their head is inhumane Like there is one person, just all it takes is one person in Hollywood to donate some of their money and a lot of people's lives will change. And I just, I don't know, I always think about that. Like how can you have that much money, more money than you and your offsprings will ever spend in their lifetime and just sit back and do nothing? Yes, Elon Musk, I am fucking talking about you. Like I just I cannot fathom it. Like, I've been donating to charity since I was literally 10 years old. Like, obviously not much. Like, I don't have much as a 10-year-old. But, like, I'd run, not marathons, but, like, races and cross-country and stuff and, like, raise money for charity. And now, like, I always donate whenever I can. But it makes me feel a bit helpless because... There's only so much your very ordinary person can do, you know, like there's only so much we can give away until we struggle. Whereas there are people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos who could give away half their bank account and in the time they've given it away, they would have made it back and they just sit back and it just fucking irritates me. Like it makes me so sad and Whenever I talk about this with people, I get like really emotional because I just, I don't really want to live in a world that's like that. Like I don't, I don't know, you know, it kind of opens up this question of like, is there really a God? Like, is there anyone else out there? Is there a higher being? Because what God would let people live like that, you know? And that was really my crisis in my religion Um, If you don't know, I grew up in organized religion. I grew up Catholic my whole entire life until I was about 16. I went to Catholic school and I've been baptized. I've had my first Holy Communion. I went to church every Sunday. Like I was in it. I was in it real deep. Um, And when I was like 15, some shit started happening in my life that I was like, nah, come on. Like I'm praying every day. Like, come on. Like someone has to hear me. And then now I'm older and, you know, I I don't believe in religion or organized religion, at least. Um, I just keep thinking, like, there really can't be anyone up there because 
some higher power wouldn't let this happen you know like it just it's inhumane so yeah i don't know i guess like la was a big shock to the system i'm really grateful i went i'm really happy i went because i think if i didn't it would always be in the back of my mind like oh what's la like or do i really belong there or blah 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 and immediately like straight off the bat i was like i cannot move here because i cannot drive but I will say I was so happy in LA, like so happy. There is something about the sun, like I don't enjoy hot weather. And so I can't imagine being in LA in the summer, but it was November and it was the most gorgeous temperature. It did rain the first two days I was there. Um, I think that was my fault as a Brit arriving in LA. I brought the rain with me, but after the rain cleared, like it was phenomenal. Like I didn't have to like wear a scarf and like eight layers like I do in London. It was so gorgeous and I loved it so much. And I felt really content there. And I met a few people that I've known forever. And I just, oh my God, like I have such good people in LA. So I know that if I ever did want to move there, I wouldn't be alone. But yeah, I can't drive. So I feel like maybe if I, if I move to LA with like a fund of money just for Ubers, whilst I learned how to drive, I could potentially do it, like learn how to drive in the valleys. But that just takes a lot of commitment. And I am a city girl through and through, like I need to be able to walk places. I just, yeah, I don't know. But never say never, because I did say once that I wouldn't go to LA and I just got back. So there we are. Okay, let's move on from LA. Um, That was a great chapter in my life. I might go back in January, maybe. I'm going to New York in January. But I think maybe I'll go to LA as well because New York will be absolutely freezing. I'm hoping it's going to be snowing though. Like I love New York in the snow. Oh my God. The first time I saw New York in snow, like I cried and I sent my parents a picture and I was like, guys, I've made it. Like this is my Christmas miracle. But yeah, I feel like it would be fun to go to LA in January when it's absolutely freezing back home and I can just be like, hi guys, I'm on Santa Monica Pier. Um, but we'll see. We'll see if my bank account allows for two trips in January. But yeah, moving on, let's get into the things that I have been loving recently. So I'm going to talk about the show that has completely changed me. Okay. The Sex Lives of College Girls. And I do think that that is a really weird name for a show. I mean, I get it, but like, Imagine you're telling your friend, you're like, oh, hey, like, you should watch The Sex Lives of College Girls. That sounds like something straight off of Pornhub. Like, (laughs) it's so awkward to tell people to watch, but it's amazing. It's on HBO Max, I think. But if you're in the UK, you can watch it on ITV Hub. And it's, oh my God, it's so, so good. Like, I have never seen university life portrayed in such an accurate way, with the exception of Shithouse, the movie. But... The Sex Lives of College Girls nails it. I love it. The four friends are absolutely phenomenal. Like their chemistry is everything to me. And I'm obsessed with it. I binge watched it in one go. Like so, so good. And season two just came out and I'm obsessed. Like it's guys. Listen, the only show I've ever told people it's compulsory to watch is Grey's Anatomy. I am telling you that The Sex Lives of College Girls is compulsory. It's a must watch. You have to do it. It is fucking amazing. I love it so much. I am in love with Renee Rapp. And yeah, another thing I've been loving, and this does actually go back to LA, so maybe we're not done with LA, but weed. Let's talk about it, okay? Because I'm from the UK and it's not legal here, which fucking sucks because I do genuinely believe that like weed isn't a gateway drug. Like you can't 
be addicted to weed, right? I ha- Wait, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think scientifically there isn't a compound in marijuana that makes you addicted to it. And so the criminality that surrounds it in the UK is because it's been criminalized. But when I was in LA, you know, you just go into a dispensary, you show them your ID, you have to be over 21, they scan it, they've got you in their system, and then you can just buy whatever you want. You know it's not laced with anything, you can get it for different things, you know what each of the strains are, you have people explaining it to you. And I just think that that's so amazing because at least for me, like I used to be very scared of weed and like I went to a Catholic school, obviously, as I already said, I don't know. It was just kind of like, not that like my body is a temple. I didn't really subscribe to that bullshit because I've been drinking since I was literally 13. But when it came to drugs, I was just like, I could never, I was like, absolutely not. Like they were just demonized to me in such a strong way that I was like, I will never touch them. And so when I was 16, I was at a party and someone gave me a joint and I ran away crying and read the Bible. Like that's how much of a fucking loser I was. Well, no, not that not smoking weed makes you a loser, but like, why are you crying, Mary? Like actually grow up, like why are you crying? And then as I got older, I went to a sixth form where a lot of people smoked, like before, after, during school, whatever. And one of my best friends had been smoking since she was like 13. And so, yeah, I tried a joint for the first time and it like it just helped me sleep so much because I've always had really bad insomnia. And so I was like, oh my God, like this is life changing. And I just never really knew how to get my hands on it because I, I just wasn't in that kind of sphere of people, I guess. Um, and so going to like Amsterdam for the first time when I was 18 was a real eye opener because it was just so normal. Like you could just smoke weed walking around or like get an edible or whatever. And then I went back to Amsterdam recently and it's just so much cheaper as well. It's like four euro for a zoo. And I'm like, sign me up. So yeah, I went to California and I went to the dispensaries there and I just love the attitude towards weed there because I mean, it's been scientifically proven to help people in a multitude of ways, whether it's chronic pain or anxiety or sleeping issues. Like I think it's such a good thing. And also like it's from the earth, you know? Cause another thing I've been thinking about recently is like microdosing mushrooms, but that's also like not legal here. Probably have to go to Canada or something. But you know, it's of the fucking earth and it has such good benefits. So like, why don't we just legalize it? You know? And technically weed is legal in the UK, but you have to get it privately and you have to be prescribed it. And so there's like that monetary block to a lot of people because going private is very expensive. And then it's like a hundred pounds for one prescription. And I'm just like, you do know the dealers are selling it cheaper than that. Because my thing is like, if you as the government can control the intake and the taxation and the consumption of marijuana, then you control the harm that it brings to people, right? Which I believe is slim to none. But let's say, you know, they're big brains over there are saying that it's a harmful drug, whatever. For you to be selling it at like a hundred pounds on private healthcare, when there are dealers that are selling it for 10 pounds, like you are adding to the problem. Does that make sense? Like by making it illegal, you are adding to the problem of people being hurt from crimes surrounding drug dealing. 
And I don't know, even that episode of the Kardashians recently where Kris Jenner was like, oh, I'm having some bad hip pain. Like, I'm going to go get an edible. It's like, that's how it fucking should be. Like, I like, oh my God, I'm so passionate about this, especially as someone who was so anti-drugs. Like, I am so passionate about legalizing marijuana and I just know it's never, ever going to happen in the UK. Like, ever because if it was going to happen it would have happened by now like everywhere else has been legalizing it like we would have we would have done that by now and we haven't and our parties are just so fucking against it and I don't know why like lighten up have some fun smoke a zoot you know like oh god but yeah I've been loving edibles recently but speaking of drugs a new part of my life is upon us guys I'm changing my antidepressants So I'm currently on 200 milligrams of sertraline and 15 milligrams of metazapine. The metazapine is for my insomnia um, and the sertraline is for my depression and anxiety. And my doctor and I kind of came to the conclusion that it really wasn't working the way it should do. Basically, I don't know what the optimal result is, but apparently I haven't reached it. So we're changing to venlafaxine and it's been a whole process. I had to get an ECG done had to make sure that my heart was okay, because if you don't know, I grew up with a heart condition, well, two heart conditions, and they kind of, you know, create a lot of problems when it comes to me receiving healthcare, because there are a lot of things I can't do or take, because they increase your heart rate, and they don't really want me to go into cardiac arrest. Anyway, it's been a couple years now since I had my last heart operation, and so even though I do get, like, the odd heart palpitation, I am, like, fine-ish, And so I had to get an ECG done because venlafaxine increases your heart rate when you take it. So got my ECG done. Results were absolutely fine. We checked in with a psychiatrist and a physiologist. Physiologist? Is that the word? Yeah. Um, And they said it was all good to go. So my venlafaxine prescription is in the post on its way to me. And the sertraline is no more. Goodbye, my sertraline sisters. It's been a fun ride. What's it been? Like a year and a half? Two years? No, a year and a half? I don't know. But over a year. Um, it's been good. Like it really did help me get a hold of my emotions, but it's definitely like not the cure, you know? And I don't know if there ever is a cure, but we will see. I'm excited to start Venlafaxine. Um, I've seen some mixed reviews on it, but I'm excited to like see if anything will change, if it helps more, if it helps less, like we'll see. So I had an 11 hour flight to LA and I was like, right, this means I'm going to bring a book and I have to read it because it's 11 hours on a plane doing nothing. I will 100% get through this. I was wrong. I brought normal people with me and forced myself to read it and I'm still not done. And it's not a long book. I just, I don't care for Sally Rooney novels. I just don't. The only reason I'm reading Normal People is so I can watch the show, so I can understand what on earth Phoebe Bridges saw in Paul Mezcal, which led her to getting engaged to the man. So yeah, I will get through Normal People eventually, but like, God, it's so dull and it's so annoying to read because there are no quotation marks. Like, Quotation marks were invented for a reason, Sally Rooney. You can't just take them out as you please. Like, just just put them back. I don't know. But yeah, I was reading it on the plane. I'm about halfway through. Actually, I read up to the point where Connell says, I'm not a religious person, but I do believe that God made me for you or made you for me or something like that. I don't know. I got to that quote and I was like, that's the famous quote. I'm done. I'm, I'm not reading anymore. I was like, I've got to the quote. I'm not reading anymore. And so I put it down and then went to sleep. And then I woke up in rainy California. So didn't didn't love that book, I'll be real with you. 
I did read Twisted Love, which is the first of the Twisted series. And guys, I am a sucker for that book, okay? Because I have openly said before, I do not really fuck with the trope of like, he's mean to everyone else, but he's an angel to me. I fuck with it. I fuck with it. Like, it's so good in Twisted Love. And I think the reason I like it in Twisted Love is because it's not like he's hiding the fact that he's an asshole. Like, he is straight up an asshole and he's not to her. But I think, like, the complexities of his life, not that it justifies the fact that he's an asshole, but like, you feel sorry for him. You feel so bad for him. And you end up rooting for the bad guy, like, quote unquote, the bad guy. And I just, oh my God, I devoured that book. I was like, sign me up. Like this is, oh, I'm breaking a sweat. It was such a good read. I also recently read The Dead Romantics and absolutely loved it, guys. I, I literally, I was reading this book and I was like, I'm not gonna cry. Like, what the fuck? Like, I always cry at a romance book. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not gonna cry. This book is not gonna make me cry. Like, I was really, I was concerned. I was like, what is happening to me? And then I got to like the final chapters bald like a baby, cried my goddamn eyes out. This book is so fucking unique. Like I have never ever read a love story like The Dead Romantics. And I'm gonna say this straight off the bat, if you are someone who critically analyzes romance novels and you want it to have like those stereotypical tropes and just everything that's in the traditional cliche of romance, then this book is not for you, okay? like. I don't want anyone to be like, Mary, I read this book because of you and it's fucking awful. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it, okay? Because I love this book. Basically, if you've watched Grey's Anatomy, you'll understand this reference. The Dead Romantics is what Izzy and Denny wish they could have been. And that's that. It's a story of a girl who is a ghostwriter, like a literal ghostwriter, writes under someone else's pen name. And she can also see ghosts. That's all I'm saying. Because if I say anything else, I'm going to ruin it. And I need you to read it because it is such a good book. It's so heartwarming. It has family in it. It has love. It has heartbreak. It has everything a girl could dream of in a romance book. Like, I love it. I think it's so unique. I think it's such a hot take on romance. And yeah, it was chef's fucking kiss. Another book I read was Archer's Voice. And My friend made me read this book because she voice noted me crying her eyes out. And I I think it's very unique. In the same way The Dead Romantics is a very unique take on romance. I've never read a book like Archer's Voice. I just like didn't love it. It started off so, so well, but it just kind of got like, ugh, like, I don't know. Towards the end, I was like, oh, okay. Like, I always find that if I'm gagging for a book to end, then it's not a good book. Like Book Lovers by Emily Henry, I did not want to end. Like, as I felt the ending of the book approaching, my heart was, like, breaking inside of me. So yeah, I didn't really love Archer's Voice. I know that's a controversial opinion, because I know a lot of people do love that book. I think it's very wholesome. I would recommend it, but, like, it definitely just isn't one of my favourite books. Now, as for TV shows, I've been getting into them, because I find that when I am under the influence, I really do have a good attention span, and, like, I will binge watch a million shows, And so I have watched Warrior Nun, which is on Netflix, which is absolutely amazing. I think it's the Vampire Diaries for the Girls and the Gays. I have watched The Sex Lives of College Girls. I have watched Dead to Me Season 3, which is 
absolutely everything I could have asked for. But it's so sad. If you haven't watched Dead to Me season three yet, but you've watched seasons one and two, I don't know how to prepare you for season three. Like, it is so, so sad. Oh my God, I love Jen and Judy so much. I feel like there's other shows that I've watched that I'm missing, but you know, maybe they'll come back to me later. But I also watched Disenchanted because obviously I grew up and I watched Enchanted when I was a kid and absolutely loved it. I will say though, I do not think that Disenchanted was necessary. I think enough time has passed now where no one's really gagging for a sequel. And yeah, I didn't really like love it that much. And I really wish I did. Maybe it's because I'm older, like what, it's been 11 years since it came out, but yeah, I just didn't love it. Um, I watched The Menu. I was invited to a private screening of that with Green and Blacks, and I really, really enjoyed it. I don't really know how to explain it. Like, it's kind of just eat the rich. Like, that's the plot of the movie, eat the rich. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> and it's got Anya Taylor-Joy. Anya Joy Taylor. I, don't, I always get her name mixed up, but it has her in it. And yeah, it's like a fun, not like psychological thriller, just the thriller basically. Yeah, it's just very interesting. And I watched The Good Nurse with Jessica Chastain and what's his name? Eddie Redmayne. And that is really, really good. It's on Netflix and it's based on a true story. And I think that makes it even worse because all the shit that goes down in that film actually happened in real life and it's absolutely heartbreaking. And I do think it's a reminder that that's why a lot of people are scared of doctors. Um, so yeah, I'd recommend watching that. I also finished watching Selling Sunset. I finished watching that whilst I was in LA because I was like, hmm, let's see. Let's see if I can go to any of these places. Actually, oh my God, I'm so fucking stupid. How could I forget? I went to the Beachwood Cafe. My Harry girls, you get me. I went to the Beachwood Cafe and I just cannot imagine Harry sat in there because... I mean, to be fair, it was packed when I went, but then also like Harry was performing in LA the time that I was there. So I thought maybe it was just filled with a lot of out of state people going there for Harry Styles. But I just can't really imagine him sat in there. And there's a sign inside that says smoking area, like inside. And I was like, can you smoke in here? Like what is going on? Um, but it's a very wholesome cafe. If you go, like, please tip. They have a tip jar that says for every tip we'll DM Harry Styles asking him to come in. And... Yeah, it's just, I, I can only imagine how many people come in as tourists or like Harry fans and like don't buy anything and just like take pictures and stuff. And so I dragged my dad with me to go and he got a vanilla latte and I got pumpkin spice latte and we tipped and it's just so wholesome in there and so cute. Um, But yeah, oh my God, how fun is this? My, <laughs> my dad was drinking vanilla lattes whilst we were in California. This is the man who like strictly drinks white Americanos, like with cow's milk. I know guys, I fucking know. But he was drinking vanilla lattes and <laughs> he normally puts a shit ton of sugar, well not a shit ton, but like two sugars in his coffees. But so many of the coffee places we went to like didn't have sugar on display in the way we do in the UK. Like in the UK, you just kind of like walk away from the coffee stand to another stand and it's got sugar and stirrers and lids and stuff like that. But in LA, everything seemed to be behind the counter. And my dad was just like, fuck it, I'll get a vanilla latte. And we got one from Alfred's and he was like, oh my God, this is so good. And so then he just had vanilla lattes everywhere we went. And I was like, oh my God, look at you, dad. Also, we went to Earth Cafe. No, no, we didn't go to Earth Cafe. We went to Cafe Gratitude, which is 
a completely plant-based restaurant and all the menu is in affirmations. So you literally have to order your food and be like, I am beautiful. And then they bring it over and they're like, you are beautiful. And I was like, bitch, I'm British and insecure. Like, please don't do this. But anyways, I completely disregarded the fact that it was plant-based, like absolutely forgot. And then the woman was like, to my dad, what do you want? And he was like, I'll have a white Americano. And she was like, with what milk? And he was like, cows. And she was like, which one was that? <laughs> uh, cow's milk like real milk and I was like I'm gonna kill myself like this is so embarrassing and then I was like like dairy milk and she was like yeah no we don't do that and I was like whoa hello so we got oat milk um which he does not like but yeah I thought that was so funny in LA like most places are vegan I thought it was just a stereotype like you guys really are out here doing that and good for you also talking of my dad in California can we just take a fucking minute we were in Soho house in West Hollywood and our Uber driver told us that that's where you see all the celebrities rather than the Soho house in downtown LA and so since we were already in the area we were like okay let's go to Soho house West Hollywood we went in there. Obviously, my dad's like, okay, fuck it up. We're going to see Jennifer Aniston. We're going to see Brad Pitt. We're going to see George Clooney. Like, we're going to see the big guys. And I'm there like, okay, I just want a picante. Why did somebody recognize my dad? I was like, hang on a minute. Hang on a damn second. This one's not really adding up. Because I literally, as soon as it happened, I was like, I'm never going to hear the end of this. So there was a film director at Soho House and he came up to me and my dad and he was like, hey, like, I'm sorry if this sounds weird. Like, I just had to ask, like, and then he basically said my dad's job. And my dad was like, oh my God, yeah. And then they just had this moment and I was just sat there like, bitch, what? Like, what is going on right now? And this happened to my dad in Whole Foods once as well. Like Whole Foods in High Street Ken in London. I was checking out and someone was like, oh my God, I know you. And I was like, what is actually going on here? I was like, Keith, what double life are you living? Okay, because this is this is unacceptable. I'm the star of the show, not you. But no, bless my dad. Um, but yeah. So anyway, that's a quick catch up on my my life recently. Um, something I actually wanted to talk about was dating and like being single and not being single in your twenties, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because I am 24 and I have never been in a relationship, and I'm absolutely fine with that. Um, but I think there is a real pressure when you start approaching your mid twenties where it's like, well, why aren't, why are you single? Like, why haven't you been in a relationship? And it's kind of like flipped on its head. Cause when I was younger, it was always like, yeah, well, you know, you're so young. And now it's kind of like, well, what's wrong with you? And I don't really like that take because everyone has their reasons for being single. Everyone has their reasons for being in a relationship. Like it is what it is. But I think with me, I spent so much of my life, like to date, in an all girls school. And then I had sixth form, which was mixed, but I had my A levels. But also, that being like the first time I was in a, you know, mixed gendered environment as a fully formed teenager my hormones just kind of like flew all over the place and I just got like way too excited. And I didn't really like give myself time to like figure things out, you know? And so I just kind of like jumped into all these situationships, definitely not relationships. Like I have never, ever been in a relationship, but like jumped into all these like situationships 
and like hooking up for people and like the whole hookup culture thing. And then I went to uni and that was when I really like tried to figure out like what I want from a relationship. And I was never in one, like <laughs> still. But, you know, up until 18, there really wasn't the opportunity or the reason for me to be in a relationship. And so that just means that I've had like six years to figure myself out, which isn't a long time. Like six years is not a long time to find the right person, find out what you want, what you like. Like that's not a lot of time. And honestly, like I was having this conversation with a friend and she was like, I just know that like your first heartbreak is going to kill you. Like it's going to break you. And I know that as well. Like it's no secret. Like I wear my heart on my sleeve. I have so many emotions I feel things so deeply. So I know that that's the inevitable, but I also don't want to just like jump into something and then get my heart broken and then waste tears on the wrong person. And, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I've grown up in a household where my parents have been married my entire life and their wedding picture looks at me every single morning. Like I just kind of, I don't know, I've always just been surrounded by the idea that you should just kind of see what happens, like see what falls into place as opposed to like serial dating because I just don't really think that would work for me. I think I would get way too attached. Like I know people who jump from relationship to relationship and like good for them. If that works for them, that works for them. I just know it doesn't work for me and I haven't tried it, but I just know that it won't work for me because I, I don't know. I just feel like I go full in. Like I will give you my absolutely everything. I do this with friendships. Like if, if I say that you're one of my best friends, like, you have my whole heart. I will do anything for you. I will jump in front of a moving train. Like, I will do absolutely everything for you. And until I kind of, like, unpack why I am that way in therapy, I don't really think it's fair for me to dive into a relationship with someone because it can come off as, like, very overbearing and clingy. And I would never want to scare anyone away. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've just kind of been vibing and like seeing what's out there. And also like coming to terms with myself, you know, I am very different now compared to who I was when I started having sex with people. So, you know, you have to figure out what you've liked, what changed, what didn't change, like all these things about yourself. And then maybe we'll do something. Maybe we'll date someone. I don't know. But I do know that I have a lot of shit to unpack and I have a lot of feelings to explore. And because of that, I just kind of want to be in a place where I'm free to do those things, free to explore, free to dive deep into myself and figure out not only how much I love myself, but how much of myself I have to give to others. Because I think that's also really important. Because another one of my anxieties around dating, especially at 24, is like, am I meant to be going into this? Like, this is the person I'm going to settle down with because I also don't want to get married and I don't want kids. So I'm like, well, do I say that straight off the bat? Like, do I go on a date and say, like, I don't want kids? Like, you know, like, does that scare them away? Does that make them think I'm weird? Like, there are just so many things. I'm like, I don't really want to just give this information to people who I'm never going to see again. And also, I don't feel like it's necessary to tell someone that you're not serious with that you don't want to get married or you don't have kids because it's not serious, you know? But then it's just really blurred lines because I don't really know what the correct approach is. Um, so, 
yeah, I just kind of am trying to figure all of that out. And I don't know, it's like fun dating and it's fun like meeting new people. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely like not ready to settle down or like do any of that jazz. And I know so many people in my life who are, and I'm just like, oh my God, this is stressful. Now let's talk about work because I am a corporate bitch. <laughs> no, I'm not. I work in media, but I do work in an office. So I like to say I'm a corporate bitch, but I don't think I'm going to be having that job in the new year. I am so, so grateful for the opportunity, obviously. But my contract expired in August and I renewed it and I asked for a pay rise, which I've already spoken to you guys about. Um, yeah, I asked for a pay rise and I got it and I stayed. And that was literally the only reason I stayed because I asked for a pay rise and they gave it to me and I was like, oh, okay then. But now it's just like not really, it's not really what I want to do. And my therapist actually made me realize that because she was, I don't even know how we got into the topic of it, but she was like talking to me about what I was doing pre-pandemic and then what my job is now and I was talking to her about law and like why I wanted to get into law and why I even took the degree and then I was telling her about my job now and she was like when you talk about law like your face lights up like when you talk about every single ambition and dream you had you glow like you you smile you look so happy and when I asked you about the job you have now you went very monotonous and like straight-faced and I never really realized that until she said it, because even now, like when I speak about all the dreams I had when I was not even younger, like pre-pandemic, like it makes me smile. It makes me remember that I am a good person and it makes me remember that I wanted so much more for myself. And I don't think that's something that you should hold back. I don't think you should ever like not take a risk because you're scared, because that's what's going to hold you back, you know, like, I understand that taking risks is, in its nature, very scary, but I've been telling myself, and also, like, trying to convince my parents that it's okay for me to leave my job, um, by saying that I got this job at a moment where I had no plans in my life. I had not a single plan. I had just dropped out of university, and I had said to my parents, if this goes tits up, you can send me back to uni. Like, I had no plans. And then I got offered this job. And I think for my parents, obviously, like, social media and influence culture isn't really something they ever grew up with and isn't something they really understand. And so they don't really understand my income and how I get paid from it. But me having, like, a job in an office that I have to go to, they understand that. And so I think for them, it's more financial insecurity. Like they don't want me to struggle. And they're like, well, if you have a job, like why would you leave it? But I just keep reminding myself that everything I do in this life is a stepping stone to my highest self. And you eventually have to close those chapters in your life to get into the next one. And I've been at this job for nearly a year. It'll be a year in February. And I am so grateful for everything it's taught me and everything that I've learned from that job and the experience and just the opportunity in general, because honestly, I am a piece of shit who cries on the internet. Like, I cannot even believe that someone wanted me to work in their office. But I do think like the time has come for me to see what else I can do in the world. I don't know. Um, there are so many things I want to do. And I just, I feel like I needed to do this job. But like, it's time is up and it's time for me 
to now take the scary risk of going back out into the world without a job and figuring things out. And yeah, I just keep reminding myself that that's exactly how I got this job. I took a risk and I believed in myself and it kind of fell into my lap, you know? And I know it doesn't always work that way. I know sometimes you have to grind and sometimes you have to fight and sometimes you have to cry and have sleepless nights over what's going to happen. I've been there, but sometimes you have to take the risk and that's that's where I'm at now. So on some of my recent podcast episodes, I have put a Q&A on Spotify of things that you guys would like explored in the podcast. So I'm going to go through some of those questions and we'll see what happens. The first one has made me laugh because it's not a question, but I'll read it out anyway because I just think it's funny. Someone wrote, Mary, I need you to stop with the We Were Liars public slander. That book was good. First book that made me sob when I was 13 years old. Sorry, this is not a topic suggestion. I hate that book. I hate it so much. And my public slander will continue because I will never forget where I was when I read it. I was on the way to Bristol and I normally read really fast. And my dad was like to me, Mary, that book is tiny. Why are you still reading it? And he was like, I can tell that you don't like it. And I was like, yeah, I don't like it, but I have to finish it. And ever since I've just been like traumatized by that book, I do not, do not like it at all. The next question is career over relationship or relationship over career. I would say career over relationship right now for me. I think it's a very personal decision. And I know that when things are serious in relationships or people are married or whatever, those questions become a lot more pressing. And it's like, well, I need to move for my job. Like, are you going to move with me? Are we going to do long distance? So those factors obviously do not apply to me. But right now, I think career over relationship. Okay, next someone says spirituality, sexuality, your teenage years a bit more in depth, but only if you're comfortable, of course. Love the pod, Mary. Well, thank you. I love you. And let's get into it. So spirituality, as I've already mentioned a multitude of times, I grew up Catholic and didn't really think of anything else. Like didn't really know about crystals or like any other religions or astrology and I always knew about astrology but not to the same extent that I do now but yeah Catholicism was my life and when I kind of realized that that wasn't what I believed in anymore what I subscribed to I became very spiritual and basically like (laughs) took a degree level of note-taking when it came to crystals and manifestation and aligning your chakras and all of that jazz. And I know that to some people that sounds insane, but my thing with organized religion and spirituality and just everything in that realm is that we are all looking for something to believe in. We are all looking for something that makes our world make sense. And so when I got into manifestation and spirituality, it was more so that I was in such a dark place and just needed to believe that things were gonna be okay. And so I would write out every single day, like what I want my life to look like, what I want my friends' lives to look like, and just get all of my feelings out in a positive light. And like those affirmations really helped me come out of a dark place. And so that is really the extent to which my spirituality transcends. I do still have crystals and I do still put specific crystals in my bag or in my pocket, depending on what I need that day. But even if you said to me like crystals don't work, the sheer fact that I believe that they work is enough willpower for me to get through the day. You know, like if I'm carrying a crystal on me that says that it's meant to ease anxiety, 
I will mentally, as if it's like a placebo effect, I will mentally be like, oh, I can't be anxious right now. And I know that it's not a cure. Like I still struggle with anxiety so much, but like, that's just an example. At the end of the day, I really do believe that we're all just searching for something to make sense of our silly little lives. And that is how I make sense of mine. <laughs> um, the next one is sexuality. And this is something that I have not really spoken about openly. I just kind of like say things that drop little hints because I choose not to label myself. Like I've, I've always been that way, even when I was like, you know, just in sexually heterosexual situations. I just never really labeled myself. I've been going to Pride since I was like 11 years old. Um, and I just, yeah, I've, I don't know. It's a weird thing to talk about, especially when you've grown up in an environment that's always been like, it's man and woman. I very much don't subscribe to that, but I also don't put a label on myself. I, I just never have. I don't feel the need for it. Like, if I had to say something, it would be like, if I had to label myself as something, it would be for someone else. It wouldn't be for me. And I feel like that's inauthentic. And so I don't put a label on myself because I don't know. I think sexuality is a spectrum. And I think we go through points in our life where we sway one way or sway another. Like I spent most of my life in heterosexual situations, but you know, now that's not the case. So I don't know, you know, I think it sways and it depends on who I meet and who they are. Cause I think at the end of the day, like I just, I just like people. So yeah, that's, that's that. I still get really like weird talking about it. Not that I need to, but I mean, I'm kind of trying to rewire my brain from what I was taught when I was younger to now being like accepting of myself. So that's been my journey with that. And the next one is your teenage years in a bit more depth. And so my teenage years are a bit of a blur. I don't really remember them that much. Um, I, I did get bullied, which like, I I don't know. You know how like some people make videos and they're like, oh, bullying really like impacted me. Like sure it did, but like for me, not for them. <laughs> um, like sure it did impact me, but I just think my brain is so good at repressing things. that I'm just kind of like, it didn't really impact me that much. Like as I grew up, it sucked at the time. And I didn't go to school for a couple months because it was so bad. Um, but that was like the extent of my school teenage years. I had a few friends in school and then, yeah, I just didn't really care to be friends with anyone in my school after I got bullied. And so I, yeah, I always said to them, I was like, you guys are Monday to Friday friends. Like, do not make plans with me. Do not reach out to me when we're finished with school. Like literally at prom, I was like, no one ever speak to me again, please. Thank you. Bye. And that, that was it. And yeah, I guess it is what it is. Like it, in a way it impacted who I became because I think it made me a nicer person. So I like always will stand up for someone now, even if I don't stand up for myself, I'll always stand up for someone else. Cause I know what it feels like to be in that situation. But uh, I don't know. I guess like teenage girls can be bitches sometimes. I definitely wasn't a saint. So, you know, I just kind of let that let that slide and hope for the best and hope that they're doing well now and whatever they were working through at the time has been worked through. And yeah, I've worked through my shit. I'm in therapy, you know, like we, we grow up, we move on. Um, but the rest of my teenage years were very much anger and fangirling. I 
was so angry as a child, well, as a teenager, like so fucking angry all the time. I used to slam doors in my house all the time. I take all my anger out on my mom and I feel so bad now as an adult. But, you know, like when you're a teenager, you don't really express your emotions correctly. And so I would have a really shit day at school and then come home and yell at my mom and like slam a door. And now I look back, I'm like, that was very unnecessary, Mary. No wonder you took theater classes, you absolute drama queen. Um, But yeah, I was very angry and <laughs> listened to like emo rock music, but also was an extreme fangirl, went to concerts literally every weekend, like loved, loved, loved the fangirl life. Spent a lot of my time on Stan Twitter. Most of my friends are from Stan Twitter, like to this day, love them so much. Um, yeah, I had like merch from every single celebrity, every single YouTuber. Like I was that fangirl. Um, I did a lot of sports in my teens. I danced all throughout my teenage years up until I was 18. I played netball, played rugby. I used to swim competitively. I was kind of a loner, but like also had friends. Like, I, I don't know. I was kind of that person who like could just float from friendship group to friendship group, but like never really had a strong, stable friendship in the same way that I've created those strong, stable friendships in my adult life. Yeah, that was a lot. I'm going to send my therapist this podcast episode. <laughs> the next question is how to know when a friendship should end. What is settling and what is having high expectations of someone? I think that you know a friendship should end when you feel burnt out from the friendship. So if you feel like you're giving way too much of yourself and they're not giving enough, then I think first of all, speak to them and express this. If nothing changes or there's no reason that you can see that they're acting this way, then maybe it's time to put you first. Because I always think of friendship as like two full glasses, right? And the friendship aspect is the empty glass in the middle. And we should be able to both pour half of ourselves into that glass and still have enough left for ourselves. But if you find that you're pouring so much of yourself into that friendship and the other person isn't, you're burning yourself out completely. And so for me, that is breaking point in a friendship. When you feel like you're putting in all the effort and the other person isn't, and as a result, you end up giving away all of yourself and they're still full, that's when you should know that things are not going going to plan, bestie. And I'm sorry that that happens because friendship breakups suck. They really do. But you will meet so many people. There are 8 billion people. Is it billion or million? I don't even know. Oh no, it can't be million because like, doesn't David Dobrik have like 8 million subscribers? Let's say billion. There are 8 billion people in the world. You will find someone who will meet you halfway. And that's what's important. Okay, the next one, which I've kind of touched on already, but I like the question at the end of this. The next question is, dating and why as a person who has been single their whole life remains single despite having opportunities or had opportunities to date? What is it about love and relationships that might scare you? I will say, I don't think I have had many opportunities to date people because I don't really hang out with that many people who would like potentially be a dating person. I think for a lot of my life, the reason I was scared of dating is because I didn't believe that I was worthy of anyone's love. And so I I just like would block it all off before it could get serious because I was like, well, you can't physically love me. Like I couldn't comprehend the fact that somebody else could love me. And so I'd be like, well, why would I do this then if like you're never going to love me? And so that was kind of my mentality before. My mentality now is 
like the scary part is having someone getting to know me for the first time and you know every year of my life there is a new chapter added to the story that I then have to tell someone and that terrifies me a little bit (laughs) okay the next question is your mental state and how you got diagnosed so my mental state now is like okay I've had a tough couple of days but I'm doing okay now Um, I got diagnosed because I reached breaking point. (laughs) Like, I always say that as, like, a joke, but, like, seriously, I I reached breaking point. Like, I had managed to, like, hide my depression from people. I mean, I thought I was, at least. Um, And then it got to a point where I just, like, couldn't leave my room. And, like, my parents would open my bedroom door and I'd be, like, on the floor crying for no reason. And so they were the ones who called my doctor. And, yeah, then she diagnosed me. But... I think you shouldn't leave it until that point. I think that if you know something's wrong, you know something's wrong and you should fight for yourself or have someone come in and fight with you because leaving it last minute is often a very dangerous situation. Like, I don't know where I would be if I would even be here if my parents didn't call the doctor when they did. So, yeah, I think a lot of people think that, like, a diagnosis is something that comes to you, but more often than not, you need to go and get it, and that's really sad that the pressure is put on us, but, yeah, I mean, I don't, I probably would have lived the rest of my life without a diagnosis if that hadn't happened, so, yeah, that's how I got it. Okay, someone else said, hi, Mary, I don't know if you've spoken about this before, but, like, things you've realised going into your 20s, things in your 20s that you need to come to terms with along those lines. I think I read that wrong. But anyway, yeah, I get what you mean. So things I've learned in my 20s is that everything is temporary. Nothing is permanent. And that's like the biggest, biggest thing for me. Like feelings, friendships, relationships, everything is temporary. Nothing's permanent. And I think before I was always told that in the light of sadness. And it's like, oh, sadness ends, blah, blah, blah. But I think also it's a good reminder to myself that like so does happiness so does euphoria like so does everything everything comes to an end and it doesn't mean you'll never experience it again but it just means that like life isn't stagnant life isn't this thing that once you reach one aspect of emotion you just stop and yeah I think realizing that that is applicable to everything kind of changed the way I walked in the world and things I've like learn in my 20s is that you're never alone I know that's that's weird but like you're never truly alone because even with the tiniest things like sometimes sometimes I'll be talking about periods or whatever and I'll be like oh my god yeah like I get this pain in like one ovary or whatever I don't know like something something so obscure that you like think that you must be the only person in the world who's ever experienced and then like someone else will be like oh yeah me too and it's like oh like we're all really just going through this together and that's a nice comforting feeling knowing that you are never alone because along with that I always um I always like to think if I ever feel alone I look at the moon because someone else out there is also looking at the moon and that's a nice reminder that you're actually never alone in this world and yeah that's something I've learned in my 20s okay this next question is so fucking cool and I'm so excited to answer it so someone said you can maybe talk about all the albums that shaped your life throughout the years. Maybe discuss an album for every year of your life starting from your teen years. And since my teen years started in 2011, which is when I turned 13, we'll go from there and work our way to present day. So in 2011, the album that shaped me was 21 by Adele. Listen to me, guys. I've told this story many times. 
But if my mom ever heard Adele playing in the house, she would be worried because she would be like, Mary's crying. So yeah, I played that on my speaker literally every day in 2011. So yeah. Uh, 2012, Light Me Up by The Pretty Reckless, for sure. 2013 is also the year that AM by Arctic Monkeys came out. And so as an Arctic Monkeys fan, that was the album that shaped that year. 2014, The Lonely Hour by Sam Smith. I absolutely adore that album to this day. But 2015, the album that shaped me was Future Hearts by All Time Low. And strictly because it has the song Kids in the Dark on it. And that's one of my favorite songs ever. And I really needed to hear that song when it came out. 2016, we have Blonde by Frank Ocean. I used to listen to that song all the time when I was like smoking by the river. Loved it. And then 2017 is when Stranger in the Alps came out. And that's when I was introduced to the love of my life, Phoebe Bridges. And that album to this day is one of my favorite albums. Always will be. Have it on vinyl. I love it so much. 2018 was definitely Waitress, the Broadway cast recording. That's one of my favorite musicals ever. And yeah, that was a year that I just listened to that non-fucking-stop. And then in 2019, Heard It In A Past Life by Maggie Rogers was definitely the album that shaped that year. And then 2020 was when Punisher came out by Phoebe Bridges. And that is a masterpiece of an album and I relate to every single song. And then literally, I think Punisher has shaped the past three years of my life. So we'll end it with that. I love you guys so much. Thank you for listening. I hope I could give you some advice in some sense, or if you just needed someone to listen to as you run errands and do chores or whatever. Here I am.